Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to another special reef keeping edition of the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. Every week I bring you a topic on marine fish or reef keeping, and once a month I bring you an interview with a columnist from Reef Keeping Magazine, found at reefkeeping.com. This week's guest is Sarah Lardizable. Sarah holds a degree in wildlife conservation and is in graduate school studying in the fields of marine and molecular biology. Her scientific interests lean towards the application of advances in molecular biology and biotechnology to fields of marine science. She has worked in marine biotechnology application projects, zebrafish, diatoms, and plant genomic research and wetland research. And she's joining us today to talk about the article that she did for this month's edition of Reefkeeping Magazine. Uh, the article she did this month is titled Beyond the Refugium. It's a primer into macroalgaes. Sarah, welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast. Thanks for having me, Rob. It's an honor. Great. Now, as with tradition, the thing that we normally do is when we start with an article or an interview, um, we want to kind of start at the basic level of things. Now, the article that you wrote is all on macroalgaes. So if you could kind of take a minute and explain to us what exactly is a macroalgae uh, and kind of what the difference between macroalgaes or algaes in general and uh, common plants are. Well, they're not the same as true plants, actually. Um, macroalgaes are sort of the precursors to land plants. So in terms of evolution, they came first and plants came later. The main dividing line is whether or not they have vascular tissue, which is sort of like the veins and arteries we have in our bodies. It gets all the nutrients around the actual land plants that we have. Macroalgaes, however, don't have a vascular tissue. They just sort of move all of their stuff around their um their leaves and their rhizoids without it. So generally speaking, they're pretty similar, just more primitive, it sounds like. Yeah, more primitive. I mean, they also don't have any true roots either. They have that rhizoid tissue, which is also called a holdfast or a crampon. It puts them into the substrate so that they can stay where they are, but it's not the same thing as actual true roots. They don't really get too much nutrition from the substrate. Right. So the big key there is, uh, when we have macroalgaes, a lot of people will see macroalgaes that are stuck to rocks, and that's not actually a rooting system. It's just a way of attaching it to secure it. In a true plant, um, the plants will derive nutrients out of the, the soil where the rooting system is, and that's kind of the difference there? Exactly. I mean, we could argue that the holdfast or rhizoid material is getting nutrition, because in some senses it could, but really it's just there to kind of lash the plant onto the rock or into the sand and not much for like nutrition out of the soil, like true plants. Gotcha. Now, um, most marine hobbyists are familiar with algae in general. In fact, I've done, with the Talking Reef podcast, we've done a lot of shows on microalgae, specifically on phytoplankton. Uh, so many of the listeners are, are quite familiar with it from the microalgae standpoint. Um, can you kind of take a minute and talk about the differences between microalgae and macroalgae, obviously other than the size of, of the two? Well, of course, as you're saying, there is the size thing. Microalgae can't really see readily with the naked eye, and macroalgae you can, obviously. It also has really elaborate appearances as far as their morphology or what they look like. Um, 
It can look like green cheech, which is pretty simple, or palm fronds, or big branching sort of tree thing. Um, but beyond the size qualification, which is sort of key, they can also be single-celled or many-celled. Now, the dividing line is kind of fuzzy because microopsy can be single-celled, of course, and then macroopsy can be either single-celled or many-celled. Gotcha. Now, a quick question that when when going through and doing the episodes on various types of macroalgae, or I'm sorry, microalgae, one of the things that we've come up with was that there's certain types of algae like Nanochloropsis, which is a a, a sessile. It's not not necessarily a, a mobile algae, um, whereas different types of algae like the 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 Isochrysis, which is actually mobile. Um, is there when we're dealing with macroalgae, is it true to say that they are all essentially non-mobile? I mean, they don't have their own internal method of moving around? Um, in some sense, yes. I mean, in the case of Calerpa, the way that they're growing across the rock almost makes it look like they're sort of, you know, walking across the substrate and moving, but they don't generally unhitch themselves from the substrate or unleash their crampons or hold fast. So, yeah, they're really not mobile. Um, some of the pelagic species, which are going to be sitting in the water, actually like sargassum, which forms some pretty extensive raft systems in the Pacific and in the Atlantic. Um, in some senses, you could say it's mobile because it's being driven by wind and currents in the directions that it's going out in the open ocean. But again, it doesn't really have a, a mind of its own, so to speak, and no method of actually moving itself like the flagella from isocrisis or... Uh, right, so, so the the like like we're talking the isocrisis has this little whip tail type thing i think like you said a flagella which it can actually use to move itself and there, there's no type of macroalgae that has anything similar to that now i mean i can think of a few that at the spore stage which is sort of the seed they do have flagella that help them move towards the substrate or away from light or towards light but the mature form once they've settled to the substrate and actually started growing into the recognizable form they're not mobile in that sense. Gotcha. Very cool. Now, with macroalgae, there's really two different types that hobbyists are familiar with. Um, and the big thing is the difference between like a, a nuisance algae and a desirable algae. Uh, specifically here, we're talking about macroalgae. So um, can you kind of take a minute and um, try to, <laughs> I know this is probably a tough one, but if we can talk about the what makes a macroalgae a nuisance versus what makes it beneficial to a hobbyist. Gotcha. Well, this is a really great question, actually, because it definitely depends on your point of view. If you have this huge system that's dedicated only to coral and you've sunk a couple thousand dollars into it, obviously pretty much any macroalgae is going to be on your hit list and you're going to want it out of your tank. But generally, it's a nuisance if it grows really quickly it's aggressive as far as how it grows. It'll overgrow corals and other sessile invertebrates, um, and you can't control it. I mean, pretty much that's the makeup or the characteristics of a nuisance algae, and it could be anything. You know, some nuisance algae to the big guys who love to keep SDS corals would be great in the seahorse tanks, but they're nuisances to the SDS guys, and they're beneficial to the seahorse guys. So, like I said, it really depends on your point of view. Okay, so essentially, if it's... Uh, now the one thing you said, if it, anything that you see in there um, is probably going to be a nuisance. Now, what you're referring to is actually in the display tank, because a lot of us are going to keep them in our systems, just separated in a refugium or something. So, True. 
And, you know, you would keep the beneficial refugium algaes, the ones that survive in a range of conditions and don't really need any special considerations in order to grow them. I mean, the ones that pretty much everyone keeps, um, Catamorpha and sometimes Calorpha, um, and also although the lettuce, those guys fit really well into a huge sort of application because they're so amazing. Right. Now, and, and the one thing that you mentioned uh, that's kind of important is that it really has a lot to do with the type of system that you have. Uh, we've talked about, we've done some shows on seahorses, and uh, we've got some more coming up in the future. Uh, and macroalgae in your display tank and a seahorse tank is something that people actually do on purpose quite frequently for various reasons. Um, so it really you know, has a lot to do with, with your actual tank that you, that you have and what you're after. Absolutely. That's all about frame of reference. There you go. Um, now, one thing that that we do, I do want to get your input on real quick is, um, and this is a common question. I'm sure if you spent any time in a, in a forum anywhere, you've seen this. But for people that do have nuisance algaes in there, the kind that do grow, you know, in, in a fashion that we can't easily control them, something that we do call uh, a nuisance. Do you have any tips or? tricks other than, you know, the obvious nutrients in this and, and whatever to help control them? Really, it comes down to having herbivores, um, a biological control in your tank. Now, you don't want to put in something that's really specific for what you have. Um, say if you have a calorba infestation, there are nudibranchs which will eat nothing but calorba, but once the calorba is gone, the nudibranchs will die because they have nothing to eat. So, in some senses, having herbivores is great, and in some senses it's not, but Having herbivores like, say, tangs or rabbit fish, which are kind of a catch-all for most macroalgae, would be a great way to sort of prevent these from becoming a problem. It's also great to know which macroalgae are kind of the problems anyway in most people's systems. The ones that I talk about in the article is being volunteer macroalgae because they just sort of pop up from the livestock. If you know what they look like in the beginning stages and kind of have a feel for whether or not you want that in your tank, then you're a little bit able, uh, a little bit better able, rather, to go into the tank and prune it or pull it out before it becomes a huge problem. I mean, the number one thing I see on the forums is definitely where people find something in their tank and they think it looks interesting, and it does in the beginning, um, but then it starts to grow out of control, and by the time they ask for help, this thing has, you know, totally taken over the tank. And at that point, really what most people can tell you to do is take your rock out, scrub it, or cook it. So right, right. it's now, definitely good to be proactive. <laughs> yeah. Now, on that note... Um, when we're talking about the differences between good and bad, and you know we're kind of getting into dealing with bad types of, of macroalgae, um, how, what, what are the ways to identify macroalgae? I mean, obviously there's, there's the Catomorpha and the Calerpa, which people are, oh, most reef keepers are, are quite familiar with because they're probably some of the more common ones. Um, but what are some other things about identifying, and if you could maybe describe uh, something that's, that's might be a little, might be common that we don't, necessarily know how to identify off the top of our heads. Definitely. Well, in the article, I give a couple of resources, both online and in print, that would be great for giving you a whole slew of photographs, and then you can compare between what you see and what you have in your tank that gives a name to what you have to deal with. Um, but as far as ones that pop up pretty frequently that you know, most people ask for help on, I would say um, most likely Dictyota, actually. It's kind of a Y-shaped algae. What was Brown the name on that? Color. I'm sorry, what was the name? Dictyota. Okay. Dictyota, yeah. I don't think I'm familiar with that one. No? 
don't it's actually so. really common from what I see. Usually since where the water is really pristine, um, no ammonia, no nitrates, all that kind of stuff, um, it tends to pop up. It's brown in color, looks like Y's on the leaf shape, actually. And I think about it um, is that the leaves are sort of striated with these fluorescence patterns that can be green or blue. So it's really kind of characteristic, and it pops up. And when it does, it's really aggressive, and it can overgrow pretty much anything in its wake. So that's one that would be great to know of that can be, again, proactive about getting it out of the system. Gotcha. Um, the nice thing about that is that it is pretty palatable to most tanks and those rabbit fish. So usually it's pretty easy to get rid of it from a biological control standpoint. Gotcha. Yeah, and the key there is... You know, trying to find certain things that aren't, you know, specifically going to to consume that. You kind of want a general herbivore type type animal there to help yeah. keep that stuff under control. Um, now, moving most on. People, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Most people do have these sort of catch-all herbivores in their tanks anyway to begin with, so it's kind of good that they have them, of course, and that there is this sort of um, habit in the hobby to have a herbivore, so that you do have kind of a catch-all. But um, oh, absolutely. I mean, and the the tang and the rabbit fish or fox face are just excellent for this, and I, I love both of them. So it's it's a great way to go. Definitely. And then you know, find other stuff in your tank that you can identify. The sort of characteristics you want to shoot for to describe it would definitely be color. Um, algae are grouped into three main classifications: reds, browns, and greens. So that's definitely something you want to know before you try to go identifying what you have. Um, as well as sort of what it looks like if the leaves are sort of oblong or if they have Y-shaped, like I was saying, um, mm -hmm. if they're really branched. And then, of course, the overall sort of size of what you're dealing with, if it's really small, if it's like the size of a dime, or if it's huge, if it's, you know, feet in length. Right. Now, when dealing with various type of macroalgaes in our tank, um, something that comes up frequently, specifically when when hobbyists are either using or talking or discussing about using a macroalgae like Calerpra, uh, is trying to deal with or prevent these types of macroalgaes from sexual reproduction. Uh, a term that's used frequently is the algae is going sexual or whatever. Um, can you take a minute and describe what this is and what this means to people with a reef system when they're keeping it in like a refugium or something? Well, you definitely hit it on the head. It is a reproductive event. Um, most of the time you do get reference that going sexual or my allergies are having sex or something along those lines, but basically the algae has found itself in a situation that it can't survive any longer. Maybe your photo period has altered dramatically. Maybe the salinity has gone up a few hundred parts per thousand, God forbid. Um, maybe some of the nutrients have fallen dramatically and the algae can't survive. But basically, it finds itself in a situation it can't survive as an adult um, algae, as what you see in your tank right now. What it does is it starts forming those spores, which are sort of like seeds again, um, and it'll release all those spores into the tank. Now, the problem is when it does that, it's got to release all the contents of the algae, the stuff that's inside the cells, along with those spores. So all the tissue gets into your tank. It starts breaking down almost immediately, and it creates this really catastrophic situation if you don't have the filtration or backup systems to keep your tank going while you have this tissue and everything else decomposing in your system. So if you're not there to stand by and sort of tweak things and make sure your skimmer's being emptied um, and do a couple water changes, it can be a really bad situation. Gotcha. Now, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to, if you can answer this, uh, some of the opinions about, you know, preventing 
stuff like cholerpa from you know sexual reproduction, such as maintaining a 24-hour uh, light cycle on your refugium or regular uh, pruning of the algae. Um, do you have any you know experience or opinion as to the effectiveness of of those or any other of the uh, community practices that are out there on actually preventing sexual reproduction in your macroalgae? Well, the pruning does seem to help. If you keep the size of your algae down, the amount of nutrients it requires is also going to be smaller. So the probability that's going to outstrip the amount of nutrients that are coming in from your bioload in your tank are going to be less. So if you keep it pruned back, it really does seem to help. I have one full-blown root system that I do prune pretty frequently. Um, I don't do the 24-hour continuous photo period thing. I'm just not really sold that that's a great thing for the algae. Um, most land plants you subject in the 24-hour light, they're going to be pretty stressed out. Of course, I said that there's a big difference between land plants and macroalgae, but right. again, no one's really done a whole bunch of research on that, so it's just not something that I think I really want to be doing. It just doesn't seem, well, for lack of a better word, natural. Yeah. Well, I know that when we when we had the show on microalgaes, um, there was research that had shown that for... Uh, a microalgae or phytoplankton cell to re- to recover from photosynthetic respiration or recover from that it only needed three seconds of shading or something like that. So if you lit it for, you know, 23 hours and 97 minutes and gave it, you know, whatever, three hour, three seconds of shade, that was enough for it to recover um, from, from the work, you know, from the workload that it has to put out for it or something like that. I, I'd have to go back and get all the details, but it was, it was something really weird like that. So it, this was coming from a common practice in, in lighting your microalgaes and when you're culturing microalgae or phytoplankton for, you know, for lighting those cultures for 24 hours. So I wasn't sure, you know, what the differences are here. Um, cause I know a lot of people talk that if you light it for 24 hours, it'll it'll prevent the, the sexual events. And some people say that, okay, well, if you keep it pruned back, I, I personally just keep mine pruned back. Um, right. I've tried 24-hour lighting cycles on my refugium and not, and I haven't noticed any difference there. So. Gotcha. Well, that's good to know. I mean, I hear this kind of stuff all the time, and it's hard to filter through what's you know, anecdotal or what might be useful, but it's, it's always good to hear these kind of feedback from the front line sort of thing, especially since... It's not something I do. Um, yeah. Now, what I can say is that, you know, I do maintain cholerpa in these systems, which actually feed them nutrients, and I've never had it go sexual in those situations. So if I give an algae plenty of, you know, what it needs to grow, it's usually fine to go ahead and do what it needs to do without going into that reproductive sort of phase of its life. Yeah, I mean, I've never had mine mine go sexual either and for probably the first two or three months that I had them I had very very little growth out of it at all um, but I've, I haven't run into any problems with mine um, I mean once it does start growing I prune it back and call it a day <laughs> so right right now you do run into some people in you know the reef keeping sort of world which they have plenty of nutrients sticking in their water from their test and they have plenty of light and plenty of everything else and the algae still not growing and you know, in some cases, we'll see people mention or advise them to add iron to their system. And there's still so much mystery around iron. I don't know if it's really such a great thing to advocate and say, yes, absolutely do it, or not. I mean, we don't even know how much iron in the system becomes toxic to all the animals that are in there. Right. So, right. again, something where we're really sort of playing around with it in the seagrass aquariums, where we don't have a whole bunch of coral or other expensive livestock to risk um, 
but not something I'd like to see everyone sort of adopt as like their next habit or, you know, craze to start adding a whole bunch of iron into their system macaroni. So. Gotcha. Now, something that I, I kind of want to move on to, well, we kind of started talking about it a little bit, and it's something that I wanted to kind of give you a chance um, as our kind of in-house expert on, on macroalgae at this point is to take a, take a minute and um, if there's any community practices that that youth feel need a little bit of correction or some things that you see people do frequently that aren't necessarily the best way or maybe not the correct way, um, anecdotal information that may not be valid. Is there any myths out there or anything that you want to um, debunk or correct? Uh, I'd like to kind of give you the opportunity to, to cover any of that stuff if you want to. Well, I think my main nitpick, I guess we could say, um, is when most hobbyists call all macroalgae calorza. It's not actually all calorza. It's, um, you know, all different sort of genuses of algae that are out there or genera, rather. That's the right word. Right, right. Um, but like you see, quite frequently people will either post for sale or post for trade um, red grape calorpa, which isn't a calorpa at all. All calorpa are actually green. Um, so it's just sort of this substitution of macro, the word macroalgae for calorpa that sort of just sort of grates on my nerves from time to time because it's just <laughs> it's so erroneous. It's like calling zoanthid zoos all the time. Yeah, so, <laughs> which we actually had a we had a show on. Uh, coral namings and calling zooanthids zoos is one of them that we specifically talked about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things that it's not right and it just sort of, you know, after a while it, it gets old. So <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that, that, fits thing, in, but... that fits right in with, you know, calling stony corals acros. I mean, any type of branching stony coral, calling it an acro. Or, um, I mean, if you want to even get more specific, it's, you know, calling you know, making the distinction between LPS and SPS. I mean, th there's a lot of them. But, yeah, I, I, I've seen that occasionally um, with, with people just generically calling that. It's not something that I run, personally run into frequently. But um, is there any yeah. other ones that you wanted to, to bring up? Well, the other one that drives me nuts, um, just because I'm sort of afraid for the people who buy into it, is um, the use of maiden pear algae, which is chlorodesmus, um, sometimes called turtleweed. Yep. It's really hard to distinguish as a hobbyist or even, you know, me, um, what the difference between maiden pear and hair algae. So obviously hair algae is something really terrible no one wants. Right. And maiden pear, some people actually want to put in their system. Um, and I see people selling it quite a bit, you know, on the forums and then trading it back and forth. And it, just, it sort of makes me, uh, as I said, just afraid for people about what they're really getting themselves into. So. Is it because of the, just the identification between that and hair algae is just really that difficult? It's not that it's really so difficult. It's just you need really a microscope to get down to that level to tell the differences between them. I mean, it will become really apparent because the hair algae is going to grow very quickly in most systems, and native <laughs> right. hair is it's pretty slow grower. Um, but, again, it's just using, you know, obviously giving someone something that's bad and decent algae on purpose just seems very mean and against the whole ethic of kind of, you know, the reef-keeping hobby. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. So it's it's kind of like the fear of the unknown. You want to make sure that, because I mean, they're, I mean, they're, you're right, there are people out there, um, You usually they're not the people that we find in, in our communities, but there are people out there that are out to just, you know, make a buck and try to sell you something. So yeah, um, exactly. you know, definitely some and, things you know, to keep an eye out for. Right. 
True. And again, made in terror, it could be good, but you don't always know what you're getting. So it's, it's just something I'm not really big on and I see quite a bit. And it just, again, great on my nerves. So if I have to nitpick, that would be one of them. <laughs> gotcha. Well, with that being said, um, let's kind of finish up with a little bit more of a fun question. And um, let's talk about the beneficial uses of of macroalgae and the different ways that we can use them. Um, I mean, obviously we talked about, you know, putting them in refugium and in seahorse tanks, but if you want to take a minute and talk about what benefits they're providing, what they're doing um, in our systems or why we want to keep them at all, uh, if you want to go through there and give, give that one a couple minutes. Sure, definitely. Um, well, obviously they make great food resources for a number of fish. All those herbivores you're talking about as being your controls in your system, again, are being fed by all the macroalgae that are in there. So they make great, of course, havens for copepods and grass shrimp and other things you might feed the rest of your fish or carnivores. But generally, macroalgae is just sort of a great sort of natural medium to have in your tank in place of, say, PVC pipe or um, plastic coral hitches in the case of seahorses. I mean, it's not only taking up excess nutrients, but it's also providing sort of a, a place for the animals to really feel like they're back where they're supposed to be coming from naturally. I mean, most of the seahorses you see these days are tank raised, but they come from seagrass areas. And just personally, I seem to feel that they do better in tanks that have natural macroalgae instead of just a whole bunch of plastic things to hitch to. I've noticed in some of my quarantine tanks that fish that are really shy or nervous or tend to jump a lot or are actually sick seem to do better than if they're if they're in a, a macroalgae filled quarantine tank than if they're in a bear tank. Um, I don't really have any data to back that up. I'm not a scientist as far as behavior, um, but it, it's just something that's sort of interesting and it, it's out there and it can definitely be a use for macroalgae. Now that's actually a really now, interesting um, idea there about using macroalgae in your quarantine tank and I can totally see it because Putting, you know, a, a, I mean, obviously it doesn't matter with a coral because they're, they don't really care, but with a fish, um, they really like to have, you know, shaded areas, places to hide, um, stuff in there that does make them feel more comfortable, which is a lot of reasons why we put that stuff in our display tanks to begin with. But in a quarantine tank, um, it's usually a quick setup. You usually don't have anything in there. Some people will put, like, a PVC tube so there's a place to hide in there, but... Um, I never actually thought about using macroalgae in there. Now, is this something that you do? I mean, what do you do with the macroalgae um, afterwards? Do you, I mean, do you put it back in your in your tank? I mean, is there any concerns with doing that? I mean, oh yeah, there's plenty of concerns with doing that. Um, definitely copepods, which can carry vibrio and other sort of bad things. Obviously, you don't want in your system and other diseases. Um, they can be on the macroalgae, and obviously, you wouldn't want to put that back into your main display. So. Macroalgae that I put into the quarantine is usually just extra that I have laying around. It's, it's discarded afterwards out. or something? I just discard it afterwards. Gotcha. No, yeah, that's that's an interesting idea, and I've never actually thought about doing that. So um, yeah. definitely something to and try I did in the future. Try, yeah, I did try my first hand at raising some clownfish, which didn't go so well, but I did have um, catamorpha masses in with them just to see if any of sort of the plankton that might be contained in the branches might help feed the clownfish. Now, of course, I don't know if that works at all because I lost the whole batch. But, yeah, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, that... stay tuned because I've got a whole series of shows all on, on breeding and raising clownfish because that's something that I do. So. <laughs> oh, excellent. Well, then I can definitely re learn. Um, there you go. You know, we use green water in our yep. 
larval rearing setup, so why not macroalgae as well? Never know. It couldn't hurt, so. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, the 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 not to stray off topic, but you, the green water is generally used to feed the food, the clownfish food. The clownfish don't actually eat it. They eat what eats the microalgae. So you have like rotifers or copepods. So you use the right. green water to feed the rotifers or copepods, and then the clownfish will eat the rotifer or copepods. They don't actually eat any of the the algae themselves. Uh, exactly. So um, I have seen some people use it just to actually sort of try to soak up some of the nutrients that are in the rearing. Absolutely, and that and that's that's actually you know a, a good idea too. Um, the key thing that you'd want to be careful with there is. Uh, with with a larval tank, you really need to be very careful about what you put in there with the risk of introducing uh, disease, infection, bacteria, stuff that those those larval fish can't, their, their bodies aren't able to handle because they're so young. They haven't built up an immune system yet. So, um, That's it. We uh, want really clean macroalgae for these tanks. Then. Yes, yes. You, you, when I work with them, I try to... Uh, there's some people that will start with water from their broodstock tank, and I just I, I try to do everything as clean as possible. You know, I mean I, I don't want to say sterile, but <laughs> you know it's pretty close, obviously. But uh, but anyways, that's you know getting a little bit off topic, and like I said, we'll have a whole series of shows on that in the future. So um, on that note, let's go ahead and wrap things up here. Um, if there's I kind of give you a last minute, if there's anything else uh, that you wanted to mention that maybe we missed throughout the uh, the last 20, 30 minutes? Well, really, I just think macroalgae are sort of underappreciated in the reef-keeping world, and it would be great if this article sort of inspired a couple more people to take the leap and keep some of them in their tanks if they're not going to be nuisances, of course, um, just to keep them around and see that they can add something to the whole aquascape that they have going on. A lot of these macroalgae are really beautiful, pretty interesting to look at, and also to study their life history, so... Hopefully, it might be nice to have a little bit of more of a balance between corals and fish and macroalgae in your system. Also, we have a whole bunch of uses for macroalgae throughout you know, our everyday human lives. Um, if you had any ice cream or used any toothpaste in the last 24 hours, you probably ate some macroalgae protein, which is sort of odd. Um, I agree, but it's definitely out there. So, again, just wrote the article with the idea that we might inspire a couple of people to sort of embrace the whole idea of macroalgae and not see them as quite the pesky nuisances that everyone seems to think they are. Awesome. Well, I just want to make one more quick reminder that uh, for everybody that the the article really does contain a lot of great information about macroalgaes and, and a whole bunch of different stuff about them. So just kind of remind everybody to make sure that you head over to reefkeeping.com and check out uh, and read that article. There's a lot of information, like, uh, like Sarah mentioned, especially some really good links on helping you to identify uh, the types of macroalgae that might pop up in there and how, how to deal with them. So... Uh, with that being said, Sarah, I'd like to, again, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Um, I know there's a lot of people in the in the Talking Reef community that are really into macroalgae, so I'm sure we're gonna, this is going to generate a lot, of, a lot of feedback, on at least on the Talking Reef forums, about, uh, about macroalgae. So I look forward to that. Uh, and, again, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show and, and sharing your experiences and, and your information with us. Excellent. Well, thank you for having me, and I look forward to all those uh, you know, questions and emails and private messages. Thanks Great. Back. I'm sure they'll be coming. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks a lot. Again, special thanks to Sarah for taking the time to come on and talk with us about macroalgae. 
At this point, let's go ahead and go through our normal roundup of all of the great items that are going to be in this month's edition of the Reef Keeping Magazine. And we start, of course, with the featured article this month, which is the article that we just interviewed Sarah on, and it's Beyond the Refugium, a microalgae, macroalgae primer. Going forward uh, is the reef slides this month, which is a coral growth sequence, which is a whole series of pictures uh, over the course of about 16 months, I think, on various growth uh, of different types of coral. And that was put together by Mark Levinson, uh, also known as Milev, uh, on the forums, and uh, a co-host, uh, partial host, whatever, um, at the ReefCast over at ReefCast.com. Uh, this month's frag of the month is propagation of small polyp stonies, and that's put together by Greg Hiller. So if you're interested in propagating uh, the small polyp stonies or branching stony corals, make sure you check out the frag of the month. Uh, and then also the tank of the month. Uh, this month you can check that out. It's a great tank, as usual. Uh, also, you can find Coral Mania. This is a fo coral photo acclimation article uh, done by Andrew Trevor Jones. Uh, this month's Reef Alchemy is a reef chemistry quiz that was put together by Randy Holmes Farley. Uh, another great Shutterbug article uh, by Greg and that was a you know doing close-up or macro shots using your point-and-shoot digital camera. So if you have a point-and-shoot, uh, not a, an SLR, but a, this article is more for uh, people with the point-and-shoot cameras. If you've got a point-and-shoot camera and you're looking for a little bit more information on how to do close-up or macro photography, make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com and check out this Shutterbug article this month. And of course, last but not least, everybody's favorite, the Reefkeeping Top 10 list. Uh, this one's a pretty good one. Make sure you head over and check it out. It's a top 10 reasons on why you should never go on vacation if you own a reef tank. Unfortunately, that's something that's near and dear to all of our hearts. So make sure you take a minute, check it out. It's a pretty good one. And uh, all of the everything else over at reefkeeping.com. Uh, again, thanks to Sarah and uh, for the for the interview. And we will talk to you all next month with another great interview. Going forward uh, is the reef slides this month, which is a coral growth sequence, which is a whole series of pictures uh, over the course of about 16 months, I think, on various growth. Uh, of different types of coral. And that was put together by Mark Levinson, uh, also known as Milev, uh, on the forums and uh, a co-host, uh, partial host, whatever, um, at the ReefCast over at ReefCast.com. Uh, this month's frag of the month is propagation of small polyp stonies. That's put together by Greg Hiller. So if you're interested in propagating uh, the small polyp stonies or branching stony corals, make sure you check out the frag of the month. Uh, and then also the tank of the month. Uh, this month you can check that out. It's a great tank, as usual. Uh, also, you can find Coral Mania. This is a fo coral photo acclimation article uh, done by Andrew Trevor Jones. Uh, this month's Reef Alchemy is a reef chemistry quiz that was put together by Randy Holmes Farley. Uh, another great Shutterbug article uh, by Greg, and that was a you know doing close-up or macro shots using your point-and-shoot digital camera. So if you have a point-and-shoot, uh, not a, an SLR, but a, this article is more for uh, people with the point-and-shoot cameras. If you've got a point-and-shoot camera and you're looking for a little bit more information on how to do close-up or macro photography, make sure you head over to reefkeeping.com and check out this Shutterbug article this month. And of course, last but not least, everybody's favorite, the Reefkeeping Top 10 list. Uh, this month's a pretty good one. Make sure you head over and check it out. It's a top 10 reasons on why you should never go on vacation if you own a reef tank.
unfortunately that's something that's near and dear to all of our hearts so make sure you take a minute check it out it's a pretty good one and uh all the everything else over at reefkeeping.com uh again thanks to sarah and uh for the for the interview and we will talk to you all next month with another great interview